We live in an information age. How can the use of information in all its forms be a decisive tool in warfare? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel and at one time anyway, instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now, when the world is facing war again. This is the second episode describing how the different elements of national power are used in contemporary warfare to include hybrid warfare. Unfortunately, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is providing very concrete examples of how each of these elements of national power are used, both effectively and ineffectively. The lessons from this war will be studied at all levels of military education for years to come. In the last episode, I described the use of economic power. In that, we can clearly see that the U.S. and the rest of NATO, except for Hungary and Turkey, are already conducting a hybrid war against Russia in direct support of Ukraine. Even if the West does not admit it as warfare, Russia certainly sees it that way. This episode will look at information as an element of national power. The role of information cannot be underestimated in achieving national strategic objectives. Information superiority according to U.S. doctrine, allows the side that has it to make well-informed decisions faster and better than the opponent. Faster and better decision-making, in turn, enables more effective use of the other elements of national power, economic, military, and diplomatic. Now, this may seem obvious, but time and again we see historical examples where one or more global competitors badly bungled this. Before going on to specifics, it's important to understand something about what the information aspect of national power encompasses. First, what is the information element of national power? Well, it's the capability of a nation to use information-related capabilities, tools, techniques, or activities in support of national objectives. This capability encompasses the aggregate of individuals, organizations, and systems that collect, process, and disseminate information data information, or knowledge across the global information environment to create effects and operationally desirable conditions within the informational, physical, and cognitive domains. So much for the U.S. doctrinal definition. But what does that mean? Essentially, the global information environment is everything in our modern communications and digitally interconnected world. Telephones, radios, news sources, the internet, books, newspapers, hand-delivered flyers, even Twitter and TikTok. Although most elements of that environment are outside of direct military control, the military subset of information operations works with the other domains of national power to influence, disrupt, corrupt, or usurp the decision-making of adversaries and potential adversaries while protecting our own. Military information operations includes things like signals intercept, jamming, and using secure, encrypted, or scrambled means of communications to keep the enemy from doing those same things to us. More interesting is what is called military information support operations, or what is still called psychological operations by the U.S. Army. These are planned operations to convey selected information and indicators to foreign audiences to influence their emotions, 
motives, objective reasoning, and ultimately the behavior of foreign governments, organizations, groups, and individuals in a manner favorable to the originator's objectives. Pay attention to that because you're going to hear those things again. Current operations in Ukraine provide excellent examples of the various applications of the information aspect of national power at all levels, from small unit to geostrategic levels. Given the limited time in each of these podcasts, I'm going to focus on the successes and failures at the strategic level. I'll start by suggesting that the best and most effective information campaign uses multiple approaches to present information which the intended audience is already inclined to hear. For example, as listeners know, I've done a lot of work on private military and security companies and mercenaries. Generally, there is a public disposition to what some call an anti-mercenary norm. Therefore, Any information that suggests that soldiers for hire are engaged in criminal misconduct is easily grabbed up by social media, the regular news, and is often accepted unquestioningly by international institutions and academia. Even the most outrageous fabrications can spread around the globe quickly, shaping or reinforcing previously held opinions about private military and security companies and, by inference, those who hire them. On the other hand, News that shows that such companies and their personnel are working hard to uphold the rule of law and protect vulnerable populations against exploitation, abuse, or murder is very hard to sell. It goes against the popular narrative, even though it may be objectively and demonstrably true. This shapes public perceptions, and as a result, national militaries and security forces who need the knowledge, skills, and abilities available through responsible and accountable companies to become competent and accountable in the defense of their own country may be unable to access that support. I'm going to move on from here to demonstrate ways that information operations shape the strategic and operational levels leading to and during the first month of Russia's renewed attack on Ukraine. At the strategic level, Russia achieved notable successes leading up to the attack in February 2022. The most notable success was in convincing the West that Russia's military forces were much more capable than was the case. This despite the Russian track record in Chechnya and Georgia, where there were numerous stumbles, with little indication that they had improved since then. Russia's stunning rapid success in Crimea in 2014, using special operations forces, mercenaries, and other irregular forces, combined with a largely receptive local population, incompetent Ukrainian military, and the reluctance of America and Britain to live up to the security assurances they promised as part of a U.S., U.K., Russian and Ukrainian agreement signed in 2014 fed the impression of Russian mastery of the new hybrid war form. Again, this despite lack of success in such hybrid operations in Ukraine's Donbass region. Another factor playing into this successful portrayal of an unstoppable Russian military was a Western predisposition to believe just that, going back to fears of Soviet military power in the Cold War. And even then, that impression was largely mythical. Once again, Russian information operations were largely successful because it was a story many in the West were already inclined to believe. The outcome of these successful information operations might have been the defeat of Ukraine in 2022. Because the West believed in Russian mastery of hybrid warfare 
and because they believed that despite Ukrainian military and political reforms, that Ukraine would collapse in the same way Afghanistan collapsed in 2021, the West may have been reluctant to provide the military hardware and the quality and quantity Ukraine needed to deter a Russian attack. The West bought into the Russian storyline and thereby nearly created the conditions to make it come true. When Ukraine did not collapse immediately, the story changed due to masterful use of information operations by Ukraine. This information campaign capitalized on the Western predisposition to favor the underdog in a fight. Understanding Western liberal democracies, and perhaps better than the political elites in those democracies, Ukraine's information campaign targeted the citizens of America and Western Europe rather than the political elite. The message focused on individual heroism and ingenuity, Husbands and fathers who assured the safety of their families and then returned to the fight. Grandmothers confronting Russian soldiers. Farmers towing away fighting vehicles that were either abandoned or temporarily unoccupied by their crew. It was a multifaceted effort, including social media, YouTube, email, and other electronic communication. It included real footage and some that was staged to include distribution of very believable CGI imagery. Ukraine also worked with mainstream media to influence Western governments to give the full support to Ukraine in war that they had refused to give in the conditions leading to war. Western governments, including the United States government, were initially reluctant to take decisive steps such as a complete embargo of Russian exports or providing the full spectrum of military hardware and software Ukraine needed. Over the course of several weeks, and with seeming reluctance, these governments responded to popular pressure and began to supply ever greater amounts of material and impose more serious economic actions against Russia. The establishment of the International Legion for the Territorial Defense of Ukraine was another part of the information campaign. Western nations saw their own citizens volunteer to fight to defend Ukraine. It also worked to reinforce the morale of the Ukrainian people as they saw people from many other countries come to their defense. It almost certainly helped that the president of Ukraine and his top advisors were not politicians, but came from the entertainment industry. They understood how to tell a story that would resonate with people. Russia, on the other hand, could not seem to have handled things worse, at least in regard to justifying their actions to the West. For the invasion itself, they claimed as justification genocide against the Russian ethnic population, while at the same time claiming that there was no ethnic difference between Ukrainians and Russians. Moscow also claimed to be liberating the Ukrainian people from a Nazi government, although the president of Ukraine and his chief advisors were Jewish. The story of the liberation of Russian peoples continued even in the face of fierce resistance to the Russian invasion by the ethnic Russian population around Kharkov. Finally, Moscow claimed that imagery of Russian forces being destroyed on the battlefield were fake and that attacks on the Ukrainian civilian population were also fake or were actually being perpetrated by the Ukrainian armed forces against their own people. Russian information operations include what is known as black psyops, that is, false information attributed to a false source. These claims look to be poorly produced and have been easily discredited and so far have been unsuccessful at influencing the people and governments of America and Europe. However, there are some who seem to want to believe these Russian stories, just as some kept messaging that the real Russian offensive had not yet started. 
As I said before, it's information that these people already wanted to believe. There is, however, another yardstick by which to measure the success or failure of these Russian information operations. That assessment must ask who the Russian government wanted to influence. Of course, if Moscow could influence the West to scale back its support, to be uncertain as to who was in the right, well, that would be an important success. More important to Moscow, however, was to influence their own people. Very few people are predisposed to believe that their country is in the wrong. Most people want to believe that their country is in the right and their cause is just. Russia is no different. I suggest that the Russian information campaign is principally directed towards their own people. The attempts to shut down access to foreign media while generating a story of American and European aggression against Russia is consistent with that idea. It's a story that the Russian people would want to believe, that they were defending themselves rather than attacking another country. It's also a story that Moscow has been promoting since its initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Looking at it from this perspective, Russian information operations may have been very successful. Recent polling data indicates that 85% of Russian citizens support Putin's so-called special military operation against Ukraine. That seems to indicate a tremendous success. Now, that said, the 85% number may itself be as unreal as the claims that Ukrainians are shelling their own people. But, if you can get your own population to think that a supermajority of your friends and neighbors support the war, then that might lead you to think that you should support the war. That approach is certainly a successful technique used in advertising campaigns in the United States. So why not in Russia advertising a message to their own people? Now, the Russians have used information operations targeting the Western political elite. This includes threats of retaliation, both economic and military, against governments that support Ukraine. These threats include the use of nuclear weapons, at least at the tactical level. Such threats may be heavy-handed, but they seem to work. So far, the West has stopped short of providing key and essential material to Ukraine or the full economic embargo of Russia. Even some of my own friends and families are asking about what they can do to protect themselves in a possible nuclear exchange. So, at this point, I would grant some success to Russia in this line of operations. It has, in fact, influenced the American and some European governments. On the other hand, it's also generated a unity within NATO that it had not seen for 40 years and may adversely affect Russia for years after the conflict in Ukraine comes to a grinding halt. Curiously, at least to me, is that we have not seen cyber warfare in a way that represents any great shift in military operations. Elon Musk demonstrated the capability of the private sector to overcome some state-generated disruption. The Ukrainians, for their part, demonstrate the use of signals intercept and tracking to target enemy military formations and key leaders, but that's been part and parcel of warfare since the beginning of the Second World War. Nonetheless, these examples of information operations demonstrate that information is an important element of national power. It can shape perceptions and influence governments towards certain actions or inaction before and during armed conflict. In our own deliberations about war, it's critical to recognize that information operations are in play, that you are a target, and to identify how someone is trying to influence you and to do what. In that way, 
it's much like the advertising for commercial products we see every day. In the next episode, I'll begin to address the different forms of military power and how they are being employed in the current conflict in Ukraine. Join me then, Chris Mayer, in the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.